All right, take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. And as you do so, question, what's the hardest class you've ever taken? What's the hardest subject for you in school? Perhaps some of you need to think way back. Perhaps some of you are taking that class right now. So last year on the college prep website, College Vine, one blog post tried to answer this question. What are the hardest college classes and which are the easiest? So see if you, you agree, all right? Five in each category. According to this article, the five hardest college classes are organic chemistry, ugh, philosophy, linguistics, quantum physics, I thought that was only in, like a Marvel Ant-Man thing, um, and anatomy, because you have to memorize a lot. The, the easiest five, on the other hand, are physical education, music appreciation, cute, personal finance, not sure how much that, that sticks though, uh, introductory psychology, and film studies, the one everybody jumps at, because we're watching movies anyway. So of course everyone's different, even in a size like this, of a size of crowd like this, but I'm wagering one or more of those classes might made you either shudder or breathe a sigh of relief. Because school is hard. Some lessons are hard to learn. And so we come this afternoon to Luke chapter nine and we see some lessons that need to be learned by the disciples. Luke was a first century physician who recorded a reliable history of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. So, he says this in chapter one, so that his readers might grow in their confidence in the things they've been taught. And we've said it before, but, and I've said it at the beginning of our service, but this ninth chapter contains some significant hinge points in the narrative Luke is laying out. In our passage for today, verses 37 through 50, we see the final stages of Jesus's ministry in Galilee. And this has been going on for several chapters. After this, in verse 51, we'll see his, he, he, his face set for Jerusalem, where he will die and suffer and be buried and then rise again. And so Jesus is getting ready for this final journey. And as he does so, he wants to prepare his disciples for what they're going to see. So in our passage today, we see four little vignettes where the disciples learn more about Jesus, what he's come to do, and what he actually calls them to do as his followers. And these lessons, as we'll see, are not easy to learn. They're more quantum physics than they are music app. The disciples will find themselves, even in these brief verses, befuddled and led to the end of their understanding. But the good news is that their teacher is wise and merciful. They have a lot to learn. But their teacher is one who will teach them and guide them patiently to the end and beyond, even to us. See, church family, we're disciples of Jesus too, are we not? And so I think as we come alongside the disciples in these verses, we will have things to learn about Jesus as well. 
So what we're going to do with our time together is just sort of hop in alongside the disciples, see their reaction to what they hear from Jesus, and think about what that should mean for us now. So turn to Luke 9, and we'll be reading starting in verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him, that is Jesus. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So, three things for us to learn alongside the disciples this afternoon. First, the disciples are weak, but Jesus is strong. The disciples are weak, but Jesus is strong. Second, the disciples are ignorant, but Jesus has a plan. The disciples are ignorant, but Jesus has a plan. And third, the disciples are proud, but Jesus has a better way. The disciples are proud, but Jesus has a better way. So first, the disciples are weak, but Jesus is strong. So, Jesus and his trio of innermost disciples, Peter, James, and John, are there in verse 37, coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration that we saw last week, where they've just witnessed the glory of God descending on the Son of God. It's, it's really, truly been a mountaintop experience for them. So they've seen Jesus transfigured, appearing before them in resplendent glory, shining majesty. Remember, we talked about glory as sort of a a shining forth of God's excellence through Christ. But now they're, they're back on the plain. They've made the trek down from the mountaintop. And as they come from that mountaintop experience, it doesn't take long for everything to come crashing back down to reality. 
Because not only do they see a plagued boy and his distraught father, but they see an argument in full swing as they return. Scribes are there, disciples are there, the crowds are there, and they're all arguing. And so as Jesus and Peter and James and John along with him are spotted, the crowd suddenly takes the argument straight to Jesus. They, they rush to see him. They're excited to see him. So what's their argument about? The Gospel of Mark shows that there's an argument going on. So what's it about? Well, there's been a request made of Jesus' disciples, the nine that were left behind uh, when they went up on the mountain. And the disciples have been unable to fulfill this request. So what is it? Look at verse 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. That's the problem. That's the argument. This man has a son who's in terrible condition. And the disciples, who just earlier in chapter 9 had been sent out with Jesus' power to do this very thing, to heal diseases, proclaim the kingdom, and cast out demons, are unable to do anything about this one situation. The disciples, I'm sure, are a little embarrassed, angered, frustrated. There's tension. And, the, and there's a relief then to see Jesus come even though the disciples are still probably saying, like, Jesus, what's going on here? Like, you gave us this power. What, what's happening? So Jesus arrives. He listens to the Father's plea. In, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew describes the boy's affliction as epilepsy. But Luke, though a doctor, sees a deeper spiritual force at work as well. And so we could go into a whole conversation about the link between physical illness and satanic oppression. They're not always together, but sometimes they are, right? The very least we can say is both physical disease and spiritual oppression are at work in this young boy. And Luke wants us to focus specifically on the spiritual aspect. So Jesus sees this terrible situation. We've seen him see these situations before, and he always responds in compassion and kindness. How does he respond here in verse 40? Well, before addressing the distraught father, before working a miracle that he's very well planning on, on performing, he calls out the unbelief of the crowds, and especially his disciples. And he says, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus' words echo Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses in, in Deuteronomy 32 is singing a song. The, the Israelites are on the brink of going into the promised land, and he, he sings this song, and part of the song goes like this. The rock, speaking of Jesus, or God, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him, speaking of Israel. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. And so Moses, with this wayward people that he's been leading for 40 years in the wilderness, 
Moses is about to die himself. He holds up for them the character of God, that God is just and faithful, and the character of Israel, crooked and twisted. And now here in Luke 9, Jesus, the the second Moses, the greater Moses that we saw last week, utters that same condemning word against God's people once more. They're crooked and twisted. They're faithless. What's apparent as you, as you read Matthew and Mark's account as well, along with this story, is that the disciples are struggling with a lack of faith. In Matthew 17, they straight up ask Jesus, hey, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus straight up answers, because of your little faith. Faith is trust, is it not? The disciples somehow, we're not given all the information, but somehow the disciples are showing a lack of trust in Jesus at this moment. We could speculate, perhaps, perhaps they've begun relying on themselves and their success. I mean, they've just gone out through all the region, healing and casting out demons. Perhaps they're getting a little comfortable in their own success. Perhaps they've just forgotten to cry out to God for help in this situation. They've been, they've been faced with a, a, a considerable enemy, a powerful foe, and, and perhaps they've just kept trying to, to speak this demon out, and they've forgotten to cry out to God in his power, remembering that their power has all along come from the Messiah. Whatever the case, Jesus' words cut to the heart of what's going on. He says, the issue is your faith. But this is what I love about this text. Jesus is engaged in some, I think, holy consternation. But what does he do? He's fed up with the disciples. So does he just throw up his hands and say, okay, you think you're so good at this. You deal with it. I'm going back up on the mountain. It's better up there. Right? Does he leave them there to kind of just re-engage the argument and just kind of like get more and more ashamed and embarrassed? No. Jesus has a condemnation, a condemning word for the disciples, but that doesn't stop his compassion. Because after his severe rebuke, he says those merciful words, bring your son here. So the man brings his son, the demon thrashes the boy about wildly, It's like the evil spirit knows the authority of the man in front of him. He throws the boy into a last frenzy. But there's no battle. Jesus merely rebukes the unclean spirit with the words of his mouth, heals the boy, and gives him back to his father. Jesus wins again. And he shows again how worthy he is of the disciples' faith, their complete and utter trust. This is the one they should be trusting in. Their disciple, the disciples are weak, but, but Jesus is strong. So they must put their faith in him. And as they grow in their understanding of him, as they grow in following him, then their faith must grow. In Mark 9, Jesus says of the demon, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So here, the Gospels, if you take them all as a whole, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the the synoptic Gospels, John's a little bit different. As you put them all together, you see here a clear connection from faith 
to prayer. Someone who trusts in Jesus will be someone who prays to Jesus and through Jesus to their Father in heaven. Someone who trusts Jesus will cry out to God in their need. One author has said, prayer is faith turned to God. So church family, what are we to learn alongside the disciples here? I trust we all have a semblance of faith as brothers and sisters in Christ. Faith is one of the means by which we are saved. Faith is generously given us by the Holy Spirit. Faith is what enables us to hold on to the promises of God. Faith is what gives us confidence of salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. But our faith must not be stagnant. It can't be a one-and-done deal. Our faith must grow. As we know Jesus more, like the disciples are learning more, our trust in him must deepen. Jesus says, disciples, you, you have little faith. And perhaps he's saying that to some of us today as well. Yes, your faith is in me, but it's weak. How can we grow this faith? Well, prayer but also community with other believers in this church. Dear Christian, there are some great resources in this church, talking about people resources, there are great people in this church for you to go to when you're struggling with weak faith. There are brothers and sisters in this room right now who have undergone testing and temptation and still have seen their faith tried but remaining true. And so talk to them. Strengthen your faith by looking at theirs. Christian faith grows. It doesn't remain stagnant. And here in Luke, we see the powerful object of our faith, the Savior who can speak and all darkness listens and, and perks up its ears. This God is worthy of your trust. You may be weak. He is strong. So look at him. Don't take your eyes off him. Fix your gaze on him and watch your faith grow. It's the first thing the disciples are learning, that they're weak. Jesus is strong. Second thing, the disciples are ignorant, but Jesus has a plan. Look at verse 43. So Jesus has just healed this boy. He's cast out the demon. He's handed this only son back to his father. Luke loves the idea of an only child being sick. Back in chapter 7, the, the widow at Nain had a, a son who had died, her only son. Uh, the, the daughter who had been raised to life at the end of what, chapter 8, I believe, was the only child, the only daughter of her parents. She, Luke loves this theme. I wonder why. He's handed this only son back to his father and response all are astonished at the majesty of God this is a high point right the crowds are ooing they're eyeing Jesus's power has been showcased in shocking dramatic fashion but just like we saw a few weeks ago in the same chapter Jesus comes from just kind of a big high point right when Peter says you are the Christ he just tempers the enthusiasm a little bit and says, yes, but do you know what I'm here to do? 
Jesus isn't here for the applause. No, he has not come just to condemn this faithless and twisted generation, but to save it, to even die for it. He's just, given his, he's just given an only son back to his father, but he's preparing to set his face for Jerusalem where he, the one and only son of God, will be separated from his father, right? All to redeem a faithless generation. Look at the second half of verse 43. Luke gives this summary statement about the crowd's general response to Jesus. He says, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, this isn't just about this one event with the boy. This is a synopsis of Jesus's ministry as a whole. Everything he's been doing, the crowds have been marveling. He's been doing so many things. They've all been clamoring to see him. But Jesus' mission is not for fame and glory, at least not yet. Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's like Jesus is saying, you know, you may be hearing the cheering of the crowd right now, but I've come to be murdered by crowds, much like these. And how do they respond? Verse 45, they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That's the saying. But one, they don't get it. Two, God is intentionally concealing its entire meaning from them. And three, they're just plain scared to talk about this with Jesus anymore. Why? Well, for one thing, this continues to just be a complete mind shift for the disciples. They're still probably wondering if Jesus is actually completely with it. How can this be true? This man whom everyone is bravoing He's going to die? They're going to kill him? Why? How? Certainly we should stop this. Certainly he's, he's got a bad plan in mind. It seems Jesus doesn't necessarily expect nor maybe want them to understand all of this at this time. And for one reason or another, they're kind of okay with that because they don't want to ask any more questions. Matthew, in his gospel, says they're distressed by this saying. It's an anxious topic for them. But nonetheless, Jesus says, let these words sink down deep into your ears and reach your hearts. Mull this over. Jesus has come not to be a crowned king, but to be crowned with thorns. The one who holds the world in his hands will be placed into the hands of the men of the world. As Corey read for us earlier from Isaiah 53, this is the plan God always had for his suffering servant. Sent to save sinners. This is the plan for our redemption, church. And the disciples are, at least in part, ignorant of it. So we're... We're trying to come alongside the disciples here, right? So what, are, what can we learn alongside the disciples right here? 
For one thing, we just need to learn what Jesus tells them. If, if these things need to sink down deep into their ears, perhaps they need to sink down deep into our ears as well. We need to remember, again, our Savior is a suffering Savior. I mean, we're used to that concept. We wear uh, crosses as jewelry. We're, we understand Jesus as this meek and mild, weak, suffering Savior. But for some reason, it was alarming to those first disciples. So have we lost some healthy alarm at this concept of the glorious presence up on the mountain of transfiguration soon hanging on a cross? Why would that be so alarming? Well, we've talked about one of the reasons. One of the reasons that Jesus wants this kind of put on the DL is because they might just try to make him king anyway. He wants to go ahead with his plan. But I think one of the reasons the cross is still so alarming to us, or should be so alarming to us today, is that the cross is what we deserved. You and I, in our sin. And even as Christians, we can like and we fall into the trap of thinking of our sin as at best a mistake, at worst a containable problem. But our sin is rebellion against God. It hurts others. It damns our own souls. And it deserves nothing less than the cross and eternal separation from God forever. So perhaps we would do well to allow these words to sink into our hearts as well today. Jesus needed to die for us. If you're here or watching online and, and you don't consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, that's why Jesus came. He says it over and over again in Luke's gospel. He came not just to teach, not just to perform miracles, but to lay down his life and so if you fill your mind with Jesus and you read all these different articles about the historical Jesus and you read his teachings and, and take them for yourself so as you might live a more moral life and yet you've ignored the cross, you miss Jesus completely. On the cross, Jesus took the sin of any who would trust in him. He took your sin so you could be set free from all the judgment you rightly deserve. He came to die on the cross to save you from your cross. Remember, the cross was more than just physical agony. It was separation from God. Judgment of God. The judgment we deserve. Jesus died to set us free from that. And then he rose again to prove that what he had done for us was effective. So friend, turn to him and be saved. That's the only way to be rescued from God's good judgment. And church, another thing we need to learn at this point is that, and I love this point, is that we're often ignorant of the way Jesus plans to work, aren't we? In us, through us, for us. And then when God is good enough to give us a glimpse of the plan that he has for us, we just kind of go, really? I mean, that's the plan? That seems diametrically opposed to how it should be done. That's the response of the disciples here. Shock and then disdain. Certainly not, Lord. But Jesus' plans are always best. We are often ignorant 
blinded to much of what is going on, but Jesus has a plan. And it's a good one. And we can trust him. Daryl Bach is a New Testament scholar that has written about this much on Luke. But I love the, the pastoral heart he shares on this passage when he says, the disciples will gradually get the picture. It's concealed from them. The time is not right for them to know. Sometimes only after the passage of time does one see what God is doing. And so the disciples need to be patient. They must listen to and trust God. Jesus knows where his God is taking him. God is in control. God can be trusted to guide his plan, even if it goes down roads no one anticipates and no one understands. As one travels down such an unknown path, it is important to keep one's ears tuned to God's voice. Christian, where is God's plan for you? Befuddling, confusing, and frustrating right now. Look at the cross. No one understood that one either. And yet that's the one that saved our souls. If the most confusing, befuddling, even angering plan of God to slay his only son for us turned out for our best, we can trust God with his plans for us right now. We can trust this king because he's already shown his plan to be best. Finally, final lesson to learn with the disciples is that the disciples are proud, but Jesus has a better way. So remember the context we're in as we come to verse 46, I believe. 46. Yes. So what's the context leading into 46? Jesus is so powerful. He was up on the mountain. He was transfigured back down on the plain. Jesus is so powerful. He, ex he can exorcise a demon. No sweat. He heals this boy. He gives him back to his father. Everybody's crazy for him. But then Jesus will suffer. He's going to lay down his life and sweat drops of blood for his people. So take in mind what, this is kind of the theme of our service, right? Jesus is powerful. Jesus is suffering. Now, disciples are seeing this. What do you think they should be thinking when they come to verse 46? So should they be thinking, man, this, is a, this, this shows how we should be as followers of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus has given us all this power, and that's great, but, you know, he's a suffering Savior. We should be, we should temper down some of this pride that's boiling up, right? Verse 46, utter insanity. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. So these disciples are following a powerful yet suffering Messiah, but they still have this idea that, you know, he says he's going to suffer, and that's kind of disturbing. But, you know, eventually we know the Messiah, he's going to set up an earthly kingdom. This is going to be great. Now, let's think about it. Who's going to be who in this new kingdom, right? Let's set up the power grid here. Let's, let's fill out Jesus' cabinet, Right? And so an argument breaks out about who is the greatest, who's going to be the right-hand man, who's going to be the secretary of state for this Messiah in his great political reign in Jerusalem. Look at verse 47. Jesus sees straight into their hearts, and in his compassion, he doesn't preach at them right away. He thinks up an object lesson. 
takes a little child, sets him up in front of them or her, and, so as, and says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. Children were not valued in first century Israel the way they're valued in 21st century Virginia. Particularly before they reached the age of 12, they were seen as lowly, unworthy, lacking value until they reached a better older age. But Jesus seems to be saying, no, even this child, this, this picture of the opposite of greatness in your eyes is valuable to me. If you welcome this child, you're welcoming me. He's showing his disciples a better way. He's saying rather than infighting and rivalry between each other, rather than this dog-eat-dog skirmish to determine who's going to be the greatest, they need to recognize that the lowliest of the low is valuable in God's eyes. And so they must be the ones who welcome and love those who are unwelcomed and unloved by those around them. For this is the way of Christ. Jesus has come to upend their concept of this pecking order of greatness. He comes to attach himself to the needy, the lowly, the poor. And so the disciples must humble themselves and recognize Jesus has come for the lowly, not the powerful, the needy, not the self-sufficient. So you think they learned the lesson. Verse 49, they tell Jesus they've run across someone who's casting out demons in his name. We tried to stop him, they say, because he doesn't follow with us. They haven't learned this lesson about rivalry, have they? Except now it's a little bit of a different rivalry, right? Maybe they got things smoothed out amongst the 12. Probably not, because this will come up again in chapter 22. But the rivalry here isn't amongst the 12 anymore. It's, it's a rivalry between the 12, you know, our little crew, and someone else who might try to, like, make a name for himself or at least proclaim the name of Jesus using Jesus' power. Make him stop. He's not one of us. So Jesus tells them not to stop the man, but he says, you stop it. <laughs> you stop it with your pride. Do not stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. The disciples will learn this all throughout Luke's gospel. But their pride has no place in Jesus' call on their lives. They must humble themselves and recognize his kingdom is not about boosting their resumes, but saving their souls. Hasn't this very thing been the nail in the coffin for so many churches. Boosting my holiness, boosting my, my persona in front of everybody else. Churches are often one of the most rivalrous places in our communities. And so what can we learn as a church family from this final lesson from Jesus to his disciples? Well, the Lord has called us to humility. 
And the Lord has called us here for this time and place to be a local church in western Loudoun County. And as a local church, we have certain things that distinguish us as Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. In general, you know, I know some of you have different opinions on some of these things, but in general, as Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, we value things like Reformed theology, believers' baptism, that's what we're called Baptists, expositional preaching straight from the text, congregational church government, plurality of leadership, so there's not just one head honcho in charge, right? These are things we think are valuable. More than that, on kind of a more uh, a secondary level, you know, we have a lineage as a church. We trace ourselves back to our grandmother church, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and many of you know the main program out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church is called Nine Marks. So some people coming to our church might feel like you're kind of a Nine Marksy church if they know what Nine Marks is. It's okay if you don't. As your pastor, I've been heavily influenced, I think for the best, by these sorts of resources. Many of you have benefited from them as well. Those of you who come to the deacon training in a few weeks, you're going to get a Nine Marks book on deacons. And I think a lot of these things, especially the first few things I mentioned about our core convictions, are super important. There's a reason we hold these characteristics so firmly, because we see them as the right interpretation of Scripture and the way we should be faithful to our Lord. We don't baptize babies. We don't see that in the Bible, right? And so there's a reason we have believers' baptism. It's important. However, shocker, not every true Christian thinks exactly like we do. There's going to be non-negotiables, right? All Christians must hold to the true gospel of salvation in Christ alone, by faith alone, through grace alone. All Christians must submit to the Bible as the authority in their life and practice. There are other things, right? All Christians must understand the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for their sins, not just making them live the better lives, but actually dying in their place. These are core principles that unite Christians up, up, up around the board, right? Across the board. But on secondary matters, I think this passage encourages us to consistently remember to hold our interpretation of Scripture humbly. That Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, we need to be pro-gospel, not just pro-gospel the way we do gospel. This is one of the reasons Jack just prayed for Harvest Point Community Church and Trinity Church of Loudoun in our pastoral prayer. We make a habit in our pastoral prayers of praying for at least one other church in our area. And they're not just Baptist churches. They're not just Reformed churches. They're gospel churches. This is a practical way we as a church show humility, the kind of humility that characterizes Jesus Christ, the one who set aside his glory and took on the form of a servant. So yes, we desire this local church to flourish for decades to come, but let's remember in closing that King Jesus is not dependent on us, but we are dependent on him. And as we do follow after him, we link arms with all those who hold to the truth of this gospel. And together we proclaim Christ is Lord. Also, he gets the praise, not us. There's no pecking order for local churches. We are one in Jesus. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for the lessons we can learn alongside the disciples. We can so often mock the disciples as as lame or blinded to what they should see that's right in front of their noses, but Lord, we are often so much the same. And so we pray that what we've learned alongside the disciples in this passage would be clearly worked out in our hearts and in our church for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.